We're in Amos chapter 5 this morning, and we're not going to read the entire text that I'm going to be preaching from just for the sake of time, because that's 15 verses. But I do want to just bring to your attention that chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4 and verse 1, and chapter 5 and verse 1 begin with similar words. The Hebrew word Shema, which means to hear, and it's in the imperative. It's a command. God wants them to listen to the prophet's message. God is speaking through the prophet. This is God's word speaking to us this morning. So 3.1 starts out with, hear this word that the Lord has spoken. And it's against the children of Israel. It's against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. Chapter 4 and verse 1, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, and who crush the needy. Again, we can see that this word is against the behavior of the children of Israel. Chapter 5, verse 1, Hear this word, which I take up against you, a lamentation. The Hebrew word is a kinah, which was sung at a funeral, at a death. And we're really looking at the death of a nation here against the whole house of Israel. Let's read verses 4 and 5 together. And six, and then, then we'll um, expound the, the passage and, and try to take home uh, what the Lord wants for us this morning. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Now, both of those are in the imperative mood in the Hebrew language because it's, it's written differently so that the translators know it's an imperative. The second one, live, is an imperative of consequence. This is indeed will happen. And so it's also in the imperative mood. And then we have the negative imperative, do not seek Bethel. Well, we've seen Bethel come up already in chapter 3. We've also seen Gilgal come up in chapter 3. And these were the places of Israel's ceremonial worship centers. Don't seek the place. Seek me and live. Don't pass over to Beer. That's the Hebrew word. The first part of that is a well. That's what a, a Beer there's no B in Hebrew, it's, uh, it's a V pronunciation, but regardless of that. And Shavah is the Hebrew word seven. And to seven is to swear yourself to an oath to something. So this well was a place of an oath that Abraham founded. So it was a significant place in Israel's history. Bethel had become a worship center, and Gilgal had its roots all the way back to the days of Joshua, 
when they had left Egypt and God had removed the reproach from the children of Israel. So these were significant places in the history and the psyche of the Hebrew nation. And yet they weren't seeking God. They were going to these places. They were going through the motions. God says, don't seek those places. And then we see the word for. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity. When you see the word surely translated, it's because the imperative is being used alongside of an infinitive for emphasis. So the word is actually found twice in the original language, but our translators don't translate it that way because it would be nonsensical to us as English readers. So that word surely, the Hebrew writer is putting that word twice, and the second one is in the infinitive modifying the first verb. So literally it's going into captivity, you will be captive. You will be going into captive to be a captive. So surely Gilgal will go into captivity, and Bethel, the place where you're looking to go, it will come to nothing. And then we have the warning in verse 6, if we don't seek the Lord, if the Jewish nation does not seek the Lord at this time, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour it. The house of Joseph is another name for the children of Israel the house of Joseph, and it will be devoured with no one to quench it in Bethel. 200 years earlier, Jeroboam I started a worship system at Bethel. And if you remember this story, it's a a really kind of a bizarre story of a prophet. And that prophet came from Judah. And he came up and he prophesied against the altar at Bethel. And God gave a sign and split that altar at Bethel. And the prophet warns, he says, if you rebuild this altar, one day a king named Josiah, he is going to burn the bones of the kings on this same altar. That was 200 years. And so there's this apostasy going on, this falling away from the worship of the one true God for over 200 years in the nation of Israel. Almost an incurable situation. And and God is so long-suffering with us and the human race in general and with the nation of Israel. For 200 years, they had built cows, Baal, which means Lord or Master, and they replaced the worship of the one true God. And so Amos is starting this out, take up a dirge, take up a funeral lament, because this nation is about to perish. And it is so far gone that the undoing of it is almost to the breaking point. But God is still holding out hope. This is our God. Our God never writes people off until they are so reprobate 
that nothing can be done. And then God gives them over to their own desires. But even in that, God gives them over to their desires in hopes that that will shake them up. This is how our God is. This is the character and the nature of the God of the Bible. So different from any other petty gods and the nations around Israel. He calls them the virgin of Israel, and he says that they have fallen. He uses that term virgin almost in a sense of sarcasm. That this is my people that are supposed to be espoused to me. They're supposed to be chaste. They're supposed to be sanctified. They're supposed to be undefiled. Oh, my virgin daughter, my, 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 my wife, my bride. She will rise no more. This, this is fatal. And that's what God is trying to do through Amos to wake up this nation. The Lord through Amos is offering one last chance for a remnant. Now God knows that the entire nation is not going to repent. He, he foreknows everything. It's no surprise to God when the mass majority of Israel walks away. But he is putting the own us on us. I didn't realize that, that that was sort of a pun until I read it and I wrote out my notes that the Lord has put the own us on us. That's what own us literally is. It's on us. The responsibility. So even though God knows that this nation is going to walk away, even when God knows that we're going to do certain things, that does not make God culpable. It does not make God responsible for what we have freely chosen to do. God may know it. God may give every warning and give every trumpet sound like he did in Amos chapter 3. And the lion is roaring. Who cannot but fear? So whose responsibility it is, is ours. And so God has a higher standard for the Israelite people. He said earlier, you're the only nation that I have known. You're the only nation that I've entered into a covenant relationship that I expect you to live by a higher standard. You're the only nation that I've given direct revelation to. You are the nation that's responsible to bring the Messiah and the message of God to the world. You alone, Israel. So they had a, a unique relationship. God had sovereignly brought discipline after discipline after on to Israel. Five times in chapter 4, we, we read this refrain, Yet you have not returned to me. Yet you have not returned to me. I have done this, this, and this, and yet you have not returned unto me. He's emphasizing, I have done everything that I can. It's like Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 says, I have got the very best seed. I found the very best soil. I broke the soil up. I put a wall around my vineyard. I hedged it. I built a tower to make sure nobody got into that. And when I came to my vineyard, I got sour grapes. And Isaiah, speaking for God, said, What more could I have done for my vineyard that it didn't bring forth the right kind of fruit? And this 
is really a picture and a reflection of us as people. God has done everything for fruitfulness, and we have no excuse. The onus is on us. We are to be seeking the Lord. This is what he, he commands. It's an imperative. Command to seek the Lord. It tells us something about God, and it tells us something about mankind in general. The imperative implies the will and the volitional act of a superior imposing it on the will and the volition of an inferior. That's, that's the use of an imperative. So it implies that God is a person, that God has a will, and that God has a desire, and it also implies that mankind can respond to God's volitional will for our lives, that man is responsible. That's the use of the imperative. So we learn that God has a will and man has a will also. We also learn that God's desire is that man would freely come to him seeking a relationship. Thirdly, the fact that God commands mankind to seek the Lord, it reveals that God must take the initiative. The Israelites would have never sought the Lord in Amos chapter 5 if God had not first sent his prophet. They were oblivious. They were blind to their own sin. And that is you and I. We are oblivious to the way we live and think and act until God intervenes. God is the initiation and the initiator of this relationship. We didn't seek him first. He sought us first. First, but that does not take the responsibility off of us. Mankind, left to himself, will not seek God. Boy, he said, that, that sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? But man has not been left to himself. That's the good news. We have not been left to ourselves. God, in his love, and in his mercy, is too wise for that. Man is not left to himself. What has God done? God's done many things so that we might respond to his seeking. First of all, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in man's heart. Everyone knows that there is something, there better be, there has to be something beyond this life. So God has put that in man's heart. We didn't do it. God created us in his image and placed that there. What else has God done? Well, God has given every one of us a conscience. God has written the laws on man's heart. Every man knows a moral standard intuitively because the Gentiles who did not even have the law had the law written on their heart, either accusing them or excusing them, one or the other. Romans chapter 2 and verse 11 through 15. What else has God done? God in his sovereignty, as all-powerful, all-wise God who can do whatever he chooses to do, God has determined man's pre-appointed times. God has done that. 
He has determined our pre-appointed times, and God has determined our boundaries. Now, why has God done that? God is not just being arbitrary. When God decides to do something, God has a purpose behind it. And the purpose is that men might seek the Lord. Acts chapter 17 and verse 27. But those are pretty general, aren't they? They're not really specific. A, a, a knowledge that there has to be something afterlife, a, a moral compass that we sort of neglect and just push off and the conscience can get seared, or our predetermined places where we work, what happens in our life, the boundaries where we go so that we would seek the Lord. But God has done some very specific things also that we might seek the Lord. God has sent messengers along with the Holy Spirit to draw men to himself. This is precisely the point of the parable found in Matthew chapter 21, where God says, I have sent messenger after messenger after messenger to my land occupants. And the land owner in that parable represents God. And God continually sends and continually sends. That's the point. The land owner sent servant after servant to receive his fruit in the vintage time. Then at last he sent his son and they killed him. That's the point that God was trying to make in that parable. Now, are there two ways to remedy this sort of apparent dilemma that God desires all men to seek the Lord, and yet all men don't seek the Lord? How do we explain that? If God is sovereign, if God is in control, and that's what it means, but it doesn't mean that God is controlling. That's the difference. So how do we... Well, some theologians have tried to reconcile this, and they've done it with the belief in the authority of Scripture, and they've done it with the belief that God is absolute sovereign, but they've assumed that God has two wills. One, that God genuinely desires all men to come into the knowledge of the truth, and they genuinely believe, these theologians believe that that is God's desired will. But they also believe that God has a second will, and that is his decreed will, and his decreed will contradicts, and somehow, but they wouldn't say that, his desired will. Because God has decreed that all men will not come, and so they cannot come, and then God holds them responsible for what they cannot do. But I think that there is a simpler solution to that in the Bible. And I could be wrong. But as I've studied the scriptures, and I've labored over them, and I've poured over them, I, I think that this is a better solution, that the, and I think the Bible gives this solution, not me, and I think it's a simple answer, and the answer is that there is no dilemma at all, and that answer is that, that God is seeking people and desires that all men would call upon him. But God has also given mankind a will, and he desires for man to freely respond to God's call. 
and that man also is culpable and fully responsible for that call. So there are two wills, but one is God's will and the other is our will. Let me read this to you. Therefore, I send you prophets, I send you wise men, I send you scribes. Some of them you kill, some of them you crucify, some of them you flog in the synagogue, and you persecute them from town to town. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. I would have, listen to that phraseology, I would have gathered you. That is God's desired will. I would have gathered you. It it, it says it frankly to us. I would have gathered you as children under my wings as a hen gathers her brood. Now listen to this last phrase, and I think this is the answer to that supposed dilemma, but you were not willing. So who is the onus on? Was it on God? Was it that God did not want them? That God did not desire them? No, God desired them, but we have a will also, and we must desire, we must respond to the one who initiated this call in our life. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. I'm going to highlight the word in. It's the realm, it's the metaphysical sphere that we find something. In what? In returning and rest, you shall be saved. That's a promise from God. In that act, in that volitional choice that we must make, in returning and in rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust, you shall be strengthened. It's in faith, by exercising faith in God. Now, what's the rest of the verse say? But you were unwilling. God is putting the own us on us. So this funeral dirge, it was something that started way back in 1 Kings. So I want you to see the historical background behind all of this passage. So turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 13, and this is... Jeroboam the first. The king right now is Jeroboam the second. They are no relationship to each other. It just was apparently a popular Hebrew name that mamas gave at birth. But in 1 Kings, we have the first Jeroboam. And this Jeroboam took 10 tribes to northern Israel. Rehoboam is the king of Judah. Rehoboam is the firstborn son of King Solomon. He was the successor to the Davidic throne. So we've got King David, Solomon, and Rehoboam. Solomon was an oppressive king at the end of his reign. He taxed the people heavily. He had concubines that were, the numbers were ridiculous. I I mean, right from the start, he starts to mess up. He makes these political treaties and alliances with pagan kings, and the way he would seal those relationships was by taking their daughters and marrying them and building their temples in Jerusalem. 
you know, for a guy who had so much wisdom, he wasn't very smart. <laughs> but anyway, when Jeroboam, Rehoboam comes to the throne, they, they come and they say, are you going to be like your dad, the way that you ruled? He says, well, let me listen to the old guys that were really wise that hung out with my dad, and I'll ask for their advice. He said, nah, I don't like that. I'm going to get some of my young crony, my young peers. And they said, man, you toughen up on them. You get even, you tell them that, that your dad's little finger, man, let me see the other way around. <laughs> your dad's belt is going to feel like just getting hit with a little, I don't know. You know what I'm getting at. I'm, I'm all turned upside down. <laughs> it was going to be worse, 10 times worse. That's what, so the, they, they just said, we got nothing to do with you. So Jeroboam does not want to lose their loyalty. So this is what he comes up with in 1 Kings chapter 13. Here's the backdrop. Starting with verse 25. Well, let me see. I have the wrong verses written down here. Let me just kind of give it to you in a, in a paraphrase. So this is the story about the, the man who comes up and prophesies against it. I must be one chapter off. I am. Chapter 12. Okay. 1225. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and he dwelt there, and he went out there, and he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart... See, this isn't, this isn't coming from God. This is Jeroboam. It's coming in his heart. Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up and offer sacrifice to the house of Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they will kill me, and they will go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he's got a strategy here. He's coming up with this in his own mind. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, Oh, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one up in Bethel, the other he put in Dan. Now, this thing became sin for the people. They went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines. On the high places, he made priests from every class of people who were not from the sons of Levi. Again, violating God's explicit revealed will in the word of God. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the fifth day of the eighth month. The wrong month. And he did it like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar, so he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made at Bethel. And he installed priests on the high places which he made, so he made offerings on the altar which he made at Bethel. On the fifth day of the eighth month, fifteenth day of the eighth month, in the month which, is, which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast of the children of Israel and offered sacrifices to the altar, and he burned incense. 
So this is, this is the source of Israel's downfall. They had replaced the worship of the one true God. They had rejected biblical authority. And they had installed any way for anyone to approach a holy God. That sounds like religion in America. Come to God however you want. No holiness. It, it's syncretism. You go to many, many evangelical churches, and it is synchronized with the way the world thinks, the way the world worships, the way they make it appealing to our flesh so that he can keep the people there. He got advice and said, what do I need to do to build a big church? I don't want them going to the other church. Well, you entertain them. You let them do whatever they want, whatever they think, whatever they feel, and boy, you're going to keep them. I remember at a missions conference writing down this quote from D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody said, you better be careful the way that you draw them because the way you draw them is the way you're going to keep them. And that is what has happened. The motives were selfish. I don't want them worshiping God. I want them here with me. I don't want them to go back to the kingdom of David. The method was syncretism religion. The result was sin. And the problem is that man had made a religion outside of biblical authority. But they were in dire need without God. So let's jump back over to Amos chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. They were in dire need without God. Listen to what's going to happen when they go out to battle. Verse 3. For the city that goes out by a thousand shall only have a hundred left. And that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord. So the solution is seeking God, seeking a person. And I want to say this clearly this morning. I want us to seek Christ. We don't need to seek a performance. It would be nice to have a bigger building, but finding God is not going to be found in a bigger building. Building God's kingdom and building Christ's church is because we are seeking Christ. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all those other things, they will happen. I don't mean that we shouldn't be praying about it, but I want to emphasize, if we want for God to bless us, we need to seek Him and live, period. And what God does, that's up to Him. And God is telling them, that real life is not found in an experience. They were going up to Bethel. They were going to Gilgal. They were getting a religious experience. They were getting an emotional high. They were getting a temporary fix. And then they were going back and living just as they always had lived before. Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, they were great places of religious significance in the past to Israel. And they had experiences there, and God's patriarchs had wonderful experiences there at Beersheba. 
but you and I cannot live spiritually on borrowed experiences. We must experience God genuinely ourselves, and God desires for us to respond to his initiative and to seek him and to live. Now arise, go out from the land and return to the land of your kindred. That's what God told Jacob at this place of Bethel. When he was running from Esau, he came to Bethel and he met God there. He met God at Bethel. He said, God, if you bring me back, you'll be my God. He wasn't committed to God at Bethel. But then God came to him and he said, I am the God of Bethel. I want you to know me, Jacob. I want you to know the God of Bethel, not just the place Bethel. There is no substitute for Christ. Everything pales in comparison to Christ. Don't go to Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't pass over to Beersheba because they are coming to nothing. The Apostle Paul put it like this. Every religious thing that he knew in his past, he was a Pharisee. He was the tribe of Benjamin. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. All of his religion, all of his experiences, this is what he said, I count them as dung that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Don't replace anything other than that personal walk with Jesus. The woman at the well, when Jesus met her, he said, if you knew the gift of God and the one who was talking to you, saying, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water that you would never thirst again. So God wants us to seek a person, not a place, not a performance, not an experience. The one who you and I are seeking, that is an eternal joy and delight that will never grow old because we'll never know all about God. That's the beauty of him. It's new. It's fresh. I'm learning things. Well, of course I am because I, I ain't too swift. <laughs> but every day God speaks and, and I'm just I'm enamored at, at how God reveals new things to me. This is the living relationship you and I have. Who, who is our God? Our God has made the, I can't pronounce this constellation, Pilatus and Orion. This is our God. You think you can know him? When Job got face to face with him, Job says, I don't know anything. Where were you, Job? When I put those constellations up in the firmament, where, where were you? Did I ask for your advice, Job? No, I didn't come looking for your counsel. And Job felt so small and so insignificant before this eternal God. Who's his instructor we find in Isaiah chapter 40? Who taught him? He weighs the nations in a scale. He says that they are a drop in a bucket. Who counseled God? Nobody. He's infinite. His knowledge is surpassing you and I. He says, I, I do the impossible. I do the improbable. He turns the shadow of death into morning, bright light. He calls the waters out of the sea, and he pours them on the face of the earth. 
Yahweh, the sovereign king of the universe, is his name. So the one that we are seeking is beyond anything we can ever imagine, and it is a lifetime pursuit of joy seeking him. Third, don't let pride stop you from admitting that you need to seek God. Verse 10, here's the pride. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate. The gate was supposed to be a place where justice was done, and they said, don't, don't you dare correct me. We're going to do it our way, and I don't, don't want to know about what I'm doing wrong. So don't let pride be your ruin. To despise correction is only to harm yourself. The only one who is hurt when you reject God's correction or the correction of a brother or sister in Christ is you. Proverbs 12.1 says this, and I got it from the New King James because, man, it just really gets to the point. He who hates correction is stupid. <laughs> Old King James is brutish, but I like stupid better. Okay, so don't let pride be your ruin. Seeking temporal things will end with eternal losses. When you're not seeking God, you're going to lose everything that you're after anyway. So as the Irish would say, just cop on. Just get with it. Look what he says. He says, you're going to seek all these things. And you are never going to dwell in those pleasant vineyards. You're going to drink wine from them, but it's never going to be enough. For I know your manifold transgressions, and I know your mighty sins. God knows all about it anyway, so we might as well seek him. It's only when we are in fellowship with God that we really have life. So verse 13 is a transition verse, but it's also an introductory to the next two verses. So when you, you don't want pride to ruin you, you understand that, that seeking God is an infinite task, that seeking God is the only way that I can live. Verse 13 is the conclusion of that. Therefore, the prudent keep silent at this time. The meaning of keeping prudent, it means not merely being silent or not moving your tongue, but it means to be quiet, it means to be introspective, it means to ponder, and it means to meditate the times that you're living in. When God speaks and God wants you to come to him and desires for your fellowship, the prudent, the wise, they will keep silent. And they will realize, I need to make a change. And so God gives one more command. And this command really, I, it, the word is exegetical, which means it explains the earlier command. So what does it mean to seek God and live? Well, seeking God can be explained in this. Seek good. Seek pleasantness. Seek your wealth. Seek your prosperity because it's all found in God. Seek good and not evil 
And here's that same promise that you may live so the Lord God of hosts will be with you. The, it's only when we are fellowshipping with God that we really have life. He will be with you. As you have spoken. Here's another explanation of what it means to seek God. When you are seeking God, it means that you hate evil. That's what it means to seek God. You can't have those things two coexisting. They are mutually exclusive. And here, here's the beauty. Here's the, my, my, my brothers and sisters, here's the, the, the great news. Is that when I am seeking God, and when I am desiring Him, and when I'm longing for Him, I don't have to worry about sin. Because God and sin are mutually exclusive. When you are walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit, and what's the rest of that promise? And you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Why? For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires against the flesh, and here's the final result, so that you cannot do those things that you would. When you are walking in the Spirit, you're going to be long-suffering. When you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to be kind. When you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to be filled with joy and all those other fruit that God gives us. So let us walk in the Spirit because when we're doing that, we are seeking God and we will naturally repel against that which is evil. That's what it means to seek God. It's another form of saying the same thing. Hate evil and love good. And you will establish justice in the gates. You remember what they were doing before in the gates? They hated reproof in the gates. And now when you're seeking God, you will establish justice, what is right in the gates. Well, let's finish up and make some application. Seeking God is our responsibility. Where does it start? It started with Christ coming to seek you. You can't take credit for it this morning. You can't pat yourself on the back and say, boy, I was really wise. I had enough wisdom to start seeking God. Left to ourselves, we would have never come to that point. But God came seeking to save that which is lost, Luke 19.10. There's no substitute for a relationship with a living God. Lord, to whom shall we go? Those were the words of Peter. I am the living bread, Jesus said. If you will eat me and drink my blood. Man, he was offending those who were just shallow seekers, wasn't he? And he was finding out who are the real seekers. And he turns around to his disciples. You guys going to flake out on me as well? And Peter, I love what he said. To whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. There is no substitute for seeking God. Perhaps God will be gracious. Let me just read this phrase here. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts will be gracious. That's the last refrain in Amos 3.15. It's not a perhaps that Amos is thinking, I'm uncertain whether God will do this. It's almost a play on words, that's not the right way of phrasing it. It's saying, 
you've got to have some faith. What do you believe about the character of God? Perhaps, perhaps God is a gracious God. Maybe you've misunderstood what God is really like. We've been leaving him behind. We've left him out of our worship 250 years. You mean God can still forgive? Yes. Oh, just taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. God will give us his grace and his mercy. All he expects from us is to respond to his initiative to draw near to him, to cleanse our hands, to purify our hearts, to lament, to mourn, and to weep. And God will turn that into joy. So I, I trust this morning that you will take the initiative this week. You know, I've been meditating on this all week long, and i got to confess, it's not easy. There are so many distractions. There are so many things that Satan's going to hit you with that's going to prevent you or think that, you know what, I blew it today. What's the point? That's the biggest lie from Satan. He desires for us to seek Him. He's telling us that this is the only place where life is. In His presence, there is fullness of joy forevermore. You want to have an abundant life? It's simple, isn't it? You abide in Christ. You let His words abide in you. And you will have a life that is so filled and so abundant. So simple. Father, I know I did not do justice to the words of Amos and to your words this morning, God. But, Father, if you will just impress on us today when we walk out of this building, that, God, you, the God of the universe, the God that, that placed Pilatus and Orion and the stars and the constellation in their courses, and they all obey your voice, that you turn darkness into morning. You take, you take the water from the Pacific Ocean and you blow it across and you bring it down as snow and rain in Utah. That is our mighty God. There is no end of searching you out, God. God, that we might know you. May that be our prayer today. To know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering. Oh, God. God, may we hunger for you. God, may we long for you. May we feel like we're in a parched desert and the only place to drink is from the living waters of Jesus. God, I pray that for our souls. I pray that for us as a church, that we wouldn't seek an experience, that we wouldn't seek a place, we wouldn't seek prosperity, but we would seek you, the God of Bethel, not the place. In Jesus' name.